0: We're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. We're just going to pick up right where we left off last week in the book of Hebrews. Um, so, here is the plan for today. I'm going to go ahead and read the text, I'm going to pray, and then I have three points that I want to draw out, three um, observations that we have uh, coming out of this text in Hebrews chapter 9 uh, this morning. Then we'll pray, and, and then we'll uh, continue to worship the Lord through, through singing. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to read from the beginning of Hebrews chapter nine. Um, the main reason why I'm doing this is if you notice at the beginning of uh, verse 15, there's a word there, and that word is therefore. And if you have, I'll say this every time I'm here, I'll say this if it's appropriate. Whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's it therefore? So if I'm just starting in 15, I'm, we're missing. We have the potential of missing a lot of comes before. And I'm not under the impression that we all have, you know, the book of Hebrews memorized and we understand all the ins and outs and the intricacies of it. So verse 15 is really continuing an argument forward that the author of Hebrews is making. So let's grab that argument from the beginning of verse one of chapter nine and then run it all the way through. We'll pray and then we'll, I've got three points for us today. All right. Hebrews chapter nine, verse one. And above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into, the, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, I'm sorry, I jumped two pages forward, the conscience of the worshiper, which Chris covered last week, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and the calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who has made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, And just as as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the life that you give us um, in it and through it. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient Um, to cover a multitude of sins. God, thank you that your death on the cross isn't something that has to be repeated continually in order for it to remain effective. But God, thank you that once and for all, you went to the cross, that you became sin for us. God, that you transformed us from sinners into saints. God, thank you that through your redemptive blood on that cross, you have taken those who were far off and you have brought them near. And God, today I pray that you would, uh, you would work in our hearts, God, as we read your word, as we worship you, God, through the reading and the application of your word this morning. God, I pray that you would, uh, you would soften us, that you would allow us to see our sin, God, that you would allow us to understand the wonder and the sufficiency of your sacrifice. And God, today I pray that you would just help us see you as the glorious, amazing creator God that you are. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. And we ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I have three, uh, three points, three things we're going to pull out of this section. We're going to sort of walk through it together. The first observation that we have today is that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. That's number one. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. So as we saw in this particular argument from 15 through 28, he's carrying forward what we have been talking about over the last handful of weeks. If you've noticed in Hebrews, there's a lot of repetition That Christ is sufficient, Christ is greater than the angels, Christ is the great high priest, Christ is is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Christ is doing things that the high priestly system could not do and could not accomplish and could not ultimately fulfill um, in the way that it was laid out. We can see the supremacy of Christ, we can see the superiority of Christ, and we can continually see Christ being compared to the old covenant. So we saw that in chapter 7, we saw it in chapter 8, we saw it at the beginning of chapter 9, and then even he continues that argument here through in verse 15, where he says, therefore, he, because of, primarily, verses 13 and 14, because he, through the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purified, he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised internal inheritance. Now, it seems pretty self-explanatory, you know, in a lot of ways. It's like, okay, well, yeah, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We've heard this 17 times in the last, you know, four months or whatever. But what I think verse 15 does that's really, that's encouraging and that's fun is that he says Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. But why? Why is Christ mediator of the new covenant? So that What? so that those who are called might receive the promised eternal inheritance so the mediation of the new covenant isn't just Christ becoming this new high priest it isn't just Christ forgiving our sins so that we can start over again it isn't so that Christ can come and just sort of make us just just good enough to get over the line and just to get into heaven and it isn't Christ just, just getting us to a point where we might be able to, to mop the floors after the banquets in heaven because we barely got there. Christ is a mediator of a new covenant so that he can give us a promised eternal inheritance. He he's goes above and beyond what the old priestly system did. The old priestly system didn't give an eternal inheritance. It didn't even give an inheritance. It was just giving uh, atonement in a very limited sense, to people who did not deserve it. But Christ goes above and beyond within this new covenant to not only forgive us of our sins, but to take us from being slaves of sin to children of God. And children of God have promised eternal inheritance. Tim Keller has seen and is seeing and is experiencing his promised eternal inheritance. Inheritance. And he didn't do it because he was a great teacher, and he didn't do it because he was a good person, and he didn't do it because he could communicate really well, and he didn't do it because somehow he became the successful church planter in New York City. You know why? It's because Christ is a mediator of a new covenant that he was called into by grace through faith, not through his works so that he could boast. But he is enjoying that internal inheritance right now because of Christ's work on the cross. And verse 15 continues that thought by saying, there's a promised eternal inheritance, but why? Because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So there's a new covenant, there's an eternal inheritance, and that eternal inheritance happens because Christ died. Because Because Christ died. And when we look at this, the, like, like we even just like let's zoom out a little bit even further, and I think he even does this in verse 15. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't just die for the, the sins of the people that were living at that time, but his, his sacrifice was powerful enough to cover all of the transgressions that had happened prior to that. He says that right there in verse 15. He redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I mean, have you ever wondered that? You're reading through the Old Testament, and you're like, wait a second if all of this is insufficient, like, how are these people getting into heaven? Like, if all of this doesn't work, really, like, if all of these people are sinning and this atoning sacrifice isn't really sufficient to cover the multitude of sins that they have committed, then how the heck is God calling them righteous? Like, how is God calling them good? How is God saying that David is a man after his own heart when the sacrifices that were made were insufficient for him? The reason why that can be the case is because Christ's sacrifice was so powerful that it covered the sins that had been created from the foundation of the world. The sin from the foundation of the world up until the point that he died were covered. But here's, what, here's the interesting thing for us. All of our sins were future sins when Christ died on the cross. Every single sin that we have committed, Christ has already seen, looked at, assessed, and dealt with on the cross period. End of story. So for those of us in the room that are discouraged by our sin, that feel like they are stuck in patterns of sin, who feel like God is disappointed in us because of our sin, who feel like we just can't be good enough for God to love us, Christ went to the cross 2,000 years ago to look each and every one of our sins in the eye and say, I'm paying for that. I'm paying for it. And what that does in our hearts or what it should do in our hearts is two things. One, it should cause us to worship God for being so amazing that he could take all of the sins that have been committed, were committing, being committed at the time and every sin that was going to be committed into the future and he has taken those things and dealt with them in a way that is glorious. But it should also allow us to walk in confidence towards the throne of grace knowing that Christ has forgiven us. Knowing that Christ loves us if you want to see the love of Christ on display, look no further than the cross. And that's what we can see here, that Christ is a mediator of a new covenant. And it gives us an eternal inheritance because he died. And that leads us to my second point here, Christ's blood had to be shed. So we, so the rest of this section here, verses 16 through 22, really focuses in kind of an, an ordinate way like talked about blood a lot like I think there's seven mentions or something like that in, of blood or it's pretty darn close if you go through all the way through so what what the author of Hebrews I keep on wanting to say Paul but I'm not going to say Paul it's like anytime I'm in the epistles I'm like oh Paul said it but it, we don't know um, but the author of Hebrews goes on to say that in order for this new covenant to work in order for this promised eternal inheritance to be given to us somebody had to die Blood had to be shed. And he illustrates this in verses 16 and 17. He goes to say, since a death, like at the end of 15, he says, since a death has occurred that it redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So he makes this transition and he says a covenant, the old covenant and the new covenant are very similar, and he actually uses the same word here in the Greek, to a will. In order for a will to work, in like a traditional sense, the person that writes the will has to die. Like, you, the will doesn't go into effect. Like, I don't go write a will and then, you know, not die and then like all of a sudden my kids just get all my stuff and I'm just like out on the streets. Like that's not how it, like, that's not how wills work, you know, like I have to die in order for that to really, you know, for that to happen. So what, what the author of Hebrews says is the old covenant had to have death involved in order for that covenant to go into effect. And he says the same thing about the new covenant. Christ had to die. Christ's blood had to be shed in order for the promises of the new covenant to, to come into fruition, in order for us to reap the benefits of the new covenant that we talked about a couple of weeks ago probably and where we see it in Jeremiah and you see it in Joel and you see the new covenant being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. That stuff didn't happen until when? Till Christ died On the cross to usher in the new covenant and to usher out the old. So, not only did blood need to be shed to enact the new covenant, but blood was required to to enact the old covenant as well. And then you can look through, as we look through it, I'm not gonna go line by line, but like he goes into pretty good detail here about how blood had to be sprinkled on all of these different things in order for these things to take effect in the old covenant. Now, I think this served two purposes. One, it served as a reminder of the cost of atonement. So when you look at the Old Testament, this is not a really clean affair. You know The temple's not a clean, shiny, nice, wonderful place. There's blood everywhere. Like they're slaughtering animals. They're watching the blood come out of the animal and watching the life of that animal go away. It's a reminder consistently, of the fact that sin is costly. And the payment for sin costs nothing less than life itself. So we see that throughout the Old Covenant, and you see it even here in verses 18 through 22. But I think the second thing that this does here is it also in the Old Covenant, especially if you look and read through Exodus, you read through Leviticus, you read through Numbers, you can see that many of these rites, many of these sacrifices that had to occur, these things communicated separation from God. So if you you think about the tabernacle, you think about even the the temple we read about in the early part of Hebrews, you have, like, restricted areas, you know? You can go into a certain spot, but then you have to stop. And then another group of people can go into another spot, and then they have to stop. And then only one person, one time a year, can go into the holiest of holy places, hoping that they don't die because they're unrighteous. So you can see that even though God gave the Israelite people a way to connect with him and a way to atone for their sins and a way to be transformed, there was still a a communication by God to them that there's separation, that God is holy and they are not, that that this atonement wasn't enough to get them there. There's a communication of separation as they walk through the every, as they walk through their rituals and walk through the rites and walk through all of the things that the law had, had sort of lined out for them in the Old Covenant. So the Old Covenant was not sufficient to fully atone for sin. The Old Covenant was communicating separation from God, even though there was an avenue to, to at least some sort of communion with God within that. But we can also see that the atonement and the reconciliation for the New Covenant could only occur through the shedding of blood, but not just any blood, but the new covenant had to be atoned with the blood of a sinless sacrifice. And that leads me to my third point. Christ's sacrifice was greater than all of the others. So, so far we can see that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, Next, we can see that Christ's blood had to be shed, like there was a blood sacrifice that had to be brought into the the temple or into this whole situation in order for atonement to occur. And then lastly, Christ's sacrifice was greater than all of the others. We can see this in verse 23 through 28. Let's read it. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own. For then Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear for the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for them. So the author goes on to show that Christ's sacrifice is greater than the sacrifices of the old covenant. And we've seen this throughout the book of Hebrews, but this is another example of how Christ's sacrifice on the cross did what the old sacrifices could not do. And I understand that this may seem repetitive and this may seem you know, maybe, some, maybe frustrating to some of you that you're like, gosh, we get it. Like, can we just get to, you know, get give me to, get me to you know, Hebrews 11, let's talk about faith or something. Like, get me out of this blood sacrifice enough. You know, but when you think of the audience, like you think of the, the like you think of first-century Jews, who have just been immersed in this culture and immersed in this situation of this is the way to God, this is the way we get there. This would have been mind-blowing, because they would have understood. The fact that they had to go—that the high priest had to go in once a year—they would have understood that they had to make a they had to make the trek to Jerusalem to slaughter a couple turtle doves and throw them in into the temple in order for them to be able to atone for their sins. Like they would have understood all of that stuff, and this would have been amazing to them. Thinking, wait a second, we don't have to do that anymore. Christ has come and has died one time to cover all of my sins in perpetuity and all the ones that I did before? Like, this is crazy. It would have been crazy for them to hear this, but not crazy in the fact that they're like, you're weird and this is not right. They would have been like, this is amazing. This is amazing that the blood of the bulls and the goats, what that could not do, Christ's death on the cross accomplished but So when we see that Christ's sacrifice was greater than others, I have 3 subpoints under that. First, Christ has entered into the presence of God on our behalf. I guess I really have six points maybe in the sermon, <laughs> but whatever. Christ has entered into the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ's sacrifice is greater than all the others. Why? Because Christ has entered into the presence of God on our behalf behalf so we can see in that in verses 23 and 24 thus it was necessary for the copies of these heavenly things to be purified of these rites so that's him referring to the the copies basically the foreshadowing or the types of things in the old covenant that were corresponding to things that are in heaven to purify with these rites but the heavenly things themselves for better sacrifices than these verse 24 for christ has entered and notice the compare and the contrast here. He's comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. He's comparing the old, the old way of doing things to the way that things are now. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Christ did not simply enter the temple here on earth and offer some sacrifices, he didn't just go into the holy of holies here on earth when he was here to offer some sacrifices. He didn't simply go through and sprinkle the blood all over all of the things that needed to be sprinkled to, in order for this new covenant to be ushered in. But rather, Christ went into heaven itself to offer, to sit at the, at the to sit at the right hand of God and to mediate on our behalf. Like, this is him pulling together all of these themes. Christ being the great high priest that mediates between God and man. Christ being greater than Melchizedek. Christ being the one who stands between us and God and mediates on our behalf, pleads our case on our behalf to God Himself. So, what the high priest could not do, Christ did. The high priest would mediate on earth, Christ mediates in heaven. The high priest of the old covenant would appear in the temple made by hands, but Christ appears in the very presence of God right now on our behalf. Again, Christian, if you are feeling discouraged because of your sin, if you are feeling overwhelmed by shame and by guilt and by condemnation, there is an advocate right now before God pleading your case. Christ is there right now. This isn't some sort of fairy tale, and this isn't something that just happened. Like at this exact moment, Christ is mediating between us and God. At this exact moment, he is in heaven saying, Clay Slavin, you are forgiven, and you are restored, and you are redeemed. Chris Lawson, you are restored, you are redeemed, you are brought near to me because of the sacrifice on the cross. This isn't some sort of acad- academic exercise that we're going through right now. Like every single one of you that calls Christ your Lord, he is an advocate for you right now. So we can lean into that. When we're discouraged, we can speak truth to ourselves about that. Oftentimes, the person that hates us the most is ourselves. We, in our heads, say we're not good enough. You're never gonna make it. Why can't you do it? God doesn't love you. God God could never love you. Those are things that go through our heads. We need to take the truths of Scripture and speak truth back to the lies that we believe. And one lie that we believe often is that we have to be good enough for God to love us. And that's simply not true. We have an advocate in Christ Jesus right now sitting at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. So first, Christ has entered in the presence of God on our behalf. Secondly, Christ did not need to offer himself Repeatedly. So Christ's sacrifice was greater than all the others because he entered into the presence of God, not just into the temple. And secondly, Christ did not need to offer himself repeatedly. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. High priests needed to go continually, we talked about this already, but high priests had to continually go into the Holy of Holies once a year with blood that was not their own blood to atone for sins in an ineffectual way. Christ has come one time to take care of all of the sin in the entire universe. One time. His sacrifice, his high priesthood Is greater than the old because he does not have to do it over and over and over and over and over again, but he only has to do it once. Christ's work did not need to be repeated, but rather, and this is my third point, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. Verse 26, the back half of that. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice. Of himself, and just as it is appointed a man once to die, and then comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ's sacrifice did not need to be repeated over and over, but one sand for all, he put away our sin, and it was enough to break down the dividing wall of hostility between us. And God, the separation that we talked about earlier within the Old Covenant, that was taken away on the cross. If you remember, when Christ breathed his last breath, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. The Holy of Holies that was separating the people of God from God himself was ripped. It was torn. That system that that displayed the separation of us from God has been done away with. Because now we can have direct access to God the Father through Christ Jesus our Lord. We can. And it's because Christ's sacrifice was final. It was final. There's no arguing about it. He's not coming back again to, to, to forgive your sins again. And it's interesting here, he says, and just as it is appointed a man wants to die and then comes the judgment, so he's saying that there is a finality to us and to our lives, just like there's a finality to us in our lives, there is a finality to Christ's sacrifice, and there's also a guarantee of his return. There's a guarantee of his return. When Christ returns to come, when Christ returns to, at the end of time, he's not going to come down and deal with sin again. He's going to come down, and he's going to take every single one of us who have called upon his name and he is going to make all things new. The the thing the thing that just like gets me so jazzed these days is like the fact that Christ and I don't know it's so funny because like I'm just just be frank with you. I grew I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing these things. I grew up saying like can you tell me something new? You've been telling me the same thing over and over and over again. I grew up that way. And not in a bad way, it's like I'm glad that my church and my church community would consistently preach the gospel to me and consistently talk about Christ's second coming and consistently do that. But the longer that I live and the more that I experience life, the more I'm excited for Christ to come and to wipe away every tear. Like the more excited I am for Christ to come and to make all things new, the more excited I am for him to take all of the wrongs in the world and make them right. And the more that I'm looking forward to Christ's return because it ultimately makes everything the way that he, had, uh, that he has created it to right. be, and that the longings that are in my heart will ultimately be satisfied on that day. So when we say that Christ is going to return again, it should not be something that we're scared of. It shouldn't be something that we run away from. It shouldn't be something that we're studying our left behind books and our newspapers, you know, to try to figure out, you know, like, am I going to be here for the, you know, for the first half of the tribulation? Do I get taken before? Like, I hope, you know, hope so. Like, it's not something for us to fear but it's something for us to engage with and something for us to look forward to and for something for us to actually pray for. It's, for. it's for us to ask the Lord to come quickly, not because we hate our lives here, but because we know that our lives with him are going to be infinitely greater. So we can see in this text that Christ's, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We can see that Christ's blood had to be shed for our sins and we can see that Christ's sacrifice was greater than all other sacrifices. So what the author here is doing as well just to set up next week chapter 10 really leans into this idea of Christ's sacrifice being once and for all. So if you want to you know if you read ahead this week you're going to see this theme that he sort of he sort of lands the plane a little bit in the end of chapter nine, by saying like Christ has come once and for all to deal with sin, and then chapter 10, he's gonna run through why that actually happens, and how that happens, and how his finality of a sacrifice creates worship in us, and that finality of that sacrifice is greater than really what we could ever imagine. So what Hebrews nine has shown us, I think, is it's shown us the supremacy of Christ. Like, it's shown us the, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And I think it's also shown us that we probably, I mean, I'm going to probably just say myself, that I don't have a high enough view of what Christ has done. Like, I don't, I don't think I understand it. I don't think that I truly internalize it. I don't think that I really lean into just how amazing it is that the God of the universe would come down, put on flesh, live a life that we could not live, who would die a death that we deserved a thousand times over, who rose again, not just so we could go to heaven, but so that we could have a promised eternal yeah. inheritance. That's, there's a lot there. And I think walking away from texts like this, it's fun, we learned a lot of new things, we heard a lot of things we already, heard, we already knew, but at the end of the day, like, the conviction that I have is that I don't, I don't see Christ as the, glorif- the glorious, wonderful sacrifice for my sin in the way that, obviously, the book of Hebrews gives me. So, when I, so the question for me today is, is, is really, why? Like, what about this is so hard for me to understand? Like, what about this is so difficult for me to wrap my mind around? And as I'm processing through that, and and this is, again, something that I'm just leaning into all the time, is like, if you ask the Lord to say, I need you to show me how glorious and sufficient and supreme you are, like, he's going to be faithful to answer that prayer for you. He just is. And that is the key to unlock unlocking, I'm, you know, I'm going to use the word abundance. and I'm not a prosperity preacher, but like, that's like you want. Like you want to live a full life. Like we got. We got to look to the glory and the supremacy of Christ. You want to live a life that's free of like grumpiness and ingratitude and anger and pride and just general like, just like not good vibes or whatever. Like. It's not you thinking better, it's not you working harder, it's not you doing more things, it's you looking at the face of Jesus Christ and saying, you are the most supreme, sufficient, and amazing sacrifice that has ever been made, and you've done it so that I can live. That is a crazy jump to make mentally, because it doesn't make sense. You're like, wait a second, so I just need to like see God as he is, and somehow my life's going to be transformed? Like I'm telling you, it's, that's how it works. But I can tell you how it doesn't work, It's not a light switch either. It's a consistent relationship with the one who has gave his life for you. So today, we need to ask ourselves, do we have a small view of Christ? Do we take him for granted? Do Do we find this stuff boring and not inspiring? And then I think something else just in closing that we can be thinking about and processing through as we worship and as we even go off into our weeks. Does our, like... Some of us might feel, and I feel this way sometimes, that we don't see Christ as glorious and supreme and awesome because we're so focused on how horrible we are that we're afraid to approach him. We're afraid to love him. We're afraid he's going to sort of slap, our, slap us on the hand for being so bad. We feel like he doesn't want to engage with us. Like, I, I often feel that way, where it's like, I could take my stuff to God, but I also don't trust him. I could. I could but i'm also very frustrated with the way that my life's going right now you know so there are there are things that we can think through and we can process through and say you know what like christ has forgiven us already and we can now approach that throne of grace with confidence i mean we're going to see that in the in the back half of chapter 10 where we're going to be able to hold fast to a confession of hope we're going to be able to we are going to be able to have a full assurance of faith like we're going to see that in the in the back half of chapter 10 but something to pray through and to think through and to process through this week is where can I see Christ as ultimate and supreme and glorious, but wh- what are the things that, that sort of make me shy away from him? Because the more stuff that we hide from him, the, f- the more distance we're gonna feel from him and the more frustrated we're gonna be sitting in these seats. Like that's just, the, that's sort of the flow And I'm telling you that, not because I read it somewhere, but because that's been my lived experience for, for, you know, for a portion of my life. And I'm sort of turning this corner now, especially, like, I mean, I I hate to always talk about this, but, like, you know, I lost my little sister last year to to breast cancer. Like, I've had a really rough time wrestling through and understanding the goodness and the supremacy and the wonderful nature of Christ himself and the fact that he wants good things from me as his child, and the fact that I lost my best friend to cancer at a very young age. The fact that there are that things happened in my life that, that are pointing me to his unfaithfulness, but my mind is saying, no, like he's faithful, that's what the Bible says. So my tendency is to pull back and say, well, actually, my lived experience is you being unfaithful, So I'm just going to like not talk to you about this part of my life. I'll talk to you about everything else. And what that ends up doing is it disrupts everything. Because at the end of the day, like God has never been unfaithful and he's not going to start today with my situation. But the way that I get through this is not by just like believing more things. It's by leaning into my relationship with Jesus and saying, I'm really disappointed that you didn't heal my sister. I'm really kind of angry that she died. I'm really kind of mad that this is my life now. I thought you were faithful, I thought you were trustworthy, I thought you were amazing, and somehow you've given me this as my lot in life? Having that honest conversation with Christ is not me being disrespectful towards him, it's me showing that I trust him. And we can have those conversations today because Christ has died for us on the cross, taken our sin, and made us new, and we know that he is a good and faithful God. So let's pray, let's think through. Thanks for being, you know, thank you for listening and being my therapist this morning. The little back half of that there. But um, let's pray and let's really ask the Lord to show us his glory, to show us his supremacy, to show us how amazing he is in a way that means something to us, not as an academic exercise, but that in the darkest parts of our life, in in the darkest hurts that we are experiencing, let us invite Christ into those places because he, that is there that he will shine the brightest. Lord, we love you and we thank you, God, and we praise you for being an amazing and wonderful and glorious God. Thank you that we have your word that we can trust. God, thank you that our lived experience is not what is true necessarily, but that your word is ultimately what is true. God, thank you that you are patient and that you are kind and that you are gracious. God, thank you that you have taken our sin and that you have scattered it away as far as the east is from the west. God, be with us as we worship you through singing. God, let these words that we sing not just be lyrics on a piece of paper, but God, I pray that you would allow them to sink deep into our hearts. We love you, God, and we thank you and we praise you. And we ask these things in your beautiful name, amen.